Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly. Great horror remakes nobody talks about. We asked half a million horror fans online to tell us some underappreciated horror remake gems, and we're here with their answers and ours. So this is going to be a risky episode, I can tell, because we got thousands of comments and votes, but unusually for us, there was quite a bit of arguing as well. Let me tell you the spirit with which I'm approaching this thing. There's a clip online I really enjoy of a performance from the TV show The Voice. This is The Voice Romania in this instance. And it's a performance by a singer named Larissa Sirtan of Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. And I find what happens while she's singing this song amazing. So she does some very distinctive things with her wording, the way she verbalizes the words as she's singing at the very beginning. And you can tell on the judges' faces that they're very skeptical. Like, And the audience is pretty quiet. They're not into it. The song, her version of it starts very quiet, basically just piano. The judges all lean back in their chairs, sort of close their eyes. The audience is quiet. It's sort of like everyone's either being hypnotized or going to sleep. And when she starts busting out these distinctive wordings, you can see on a couple of the judges' faces that they think they're about to hear one of the worst performances they've heard on the show. Because she's just making it sound kind of weird. And mid-note, you see one of the judges as she climbs higher and higher singing, going from that weird low throttle sound to like a really high note. You see one of the judges throw his hands up like, what the hell is this performance? And then as the note gets higher and purer and clearer, he sort of sits up in his chair like, wait a minute. And then she ends the quiet part of the song and goes hard. And the audience loses their minds. The chair, the judges chairs start to spin. As the song gets more and more powerful, you literally watch one of the judges just sort of helplessly utter the word wow. And then it all ends with this thunderous crescendo of her finishing the song and the audience roaring. Just a pretty remarkable thing. I'll link it in the show notes if you're interested. Or maybe you already know what I'm talking about. I don't know how popular this thing is. Honestly, it still gives me chills thinking about it. And this is how I approach horror remakes, I think. I might be missing that gene that a lot of horror fans have where they just hate the idea of remakes in general, which I get. I'm just not wired that way. Because look, as good as Larissa's performance of Nirvana was, it's not better than what Nirvana themselves did with the song. It's just different. I see them as like variations on a theme, sort of almost like jazz. And in a weird way, what a remake does doesn't impact how I feel about the originals at all. It's not like my respect and love and admiration for Wes Craven's original Nightmare on Elm Street was changed somehow by the 2010 remake. Whether the remake exists or not, it, it wouldn't change one way or another how I feel about Elm Street. And another thing I think that gets illuminated by thinking about it as cover versions uh, musically is 
that performance of Smells Like Teen Spirit was amazing and would have been amazing in a studio. It just would have been amazing by itself. And and I would have thoroughly enjoyed it if I would heard some version of it. But it wouldn't have been the same as that electric feeling of the audience and the judges and how all that played out. And it reminds me that part of movies magic is what the how the audience responds to it. And that's part of why I'm really excited about this episode, because in all the voting and there was a lot of it for, you know, best underappreciated horror remakes, there were really passionate conversations going on. People who really enjoyed they had a great theater experience seeing the remake they were voting for seeing it with a crowd watching it uh, with their friends or family watching it over time and realizing even if they're watching it by themselves that their feelings have changed by it so you know i respect all of what's going on there just like i respect if you hate all the idea of remakes at all which is fine just uh, try to listen in the spirit with which I'm doing this, which is you can like Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal and you can also like Alien Ant Farm's Smooth Criminal. And let's be clear, just because I feel this way about remakes doesn't mean I'm going to accept bad ones any more than if I was a judge on The Voice and someone came out and did a horrible cover version of Heart Shaped Box that I would applaud for it. I wouldn't. I'd be like, that's terrible. And one other thing that happened here that I love is that just like I do with any question that gets asked on the Horror Weekly pages, I try to predict how what the outcome is going to be, right? Like if I had asked just what are the best horror remakes and hadn't put in the that people don't talk about or that are underappreciated, if I just straight asked what are the best horror remakes, I'm sure I had come to record this episode on that subject in the top three or four would have been The Thing, would have been The Blob, would have been Cronenberg's The Fly. Like, I know that's what, how that would go down. But in this voting, I made my predictions, and I was completely wrong. Out of the top five spots, I only guessed one <laughs> movie right. The other four I did not see coming at all. So because there's a lot of movies to go over, let's get into it. Now, there's a big jumble in the voting before the top five, so I'm going to talk about all of these in no particular order. It's only in the top five where everything clarified and there was like big gaps in difference between the votes. Okay, so four best horror remakes that no one seems to talk about voting wise with just under shy of 100 votes was My Bloody Valentine 3D. This is a 2009 slasher film directed by Patrick Lussier and co-written by Zane Smith and Todd Farmer. Todd Farmer is of Jason X fame or infame, as the case may be. The director, Patrick Lussier, comes from the Wes Craven School. He was the film editor on all four Scream movies, Wes Craven's New Nightmare and Red Eye, amongst others. And I think that's important because when I think of My Bloody Valentine 3D, well, first of all, we have to deal with the original, right? Which is a really good movie. Not one of my favorite slashers. That's just a personal thing. I read somewhere that it's Quentin Tarantino's either favorite slasher or favorite horror movie of all time, which seems impossible. But he has some kind of affection for that movie, I, I believe. 
But when I think of <laughs> the 3D remake, I just think fun. I, I think, and, you know, because the director kind of comes from that old school slasher renaissance era, he really knows how to put set pieces together and make them fun. And then when you add in the element of 3D, and this is one of my favorite uses of 3D in my memory. When I saw this in the theater, it was it was a real it was a different experience watching the audience react to eyeballs flying at the screen and pickaxes flying at the screen and bullets. I remember when there's there's a bullet effect when the bullets being fired that made a whole bunch of people in front of me in the theater jump. I rewatched this movie once out of the theater and I don't feel like it had quite the same effect on me, but I guess that's natural with that kind of gimmick. Now, clearly this movie isn't great, great, but I like it a lot and I really enjoyed its visual creativity. There's a great moment in this movie where the miner is attacking someone in a room and he swings the pickaxe and it sticks in the floor. And I've seen this used with weapons in horror movies once in a while where someone uses a weapon and it gets stuck. And 99% of the time when you see that happen in a horror movie, it gives the victim a chance to run away while the killer is trying to extricate their weapon from wherever it's stuck. And I don't remember seeing this done in a clever way like this movie does it, but it doesn't bother the miner at all that his weapon's stuck in the ground. A pickaxe faces both ways. So he just grabs the victim by the head and forces him in glorious 3D style downward into the axe. He doesn't even bother pulling it out of the ground. He just is like, if my weapon won't go to the victim, my victim's going to go to the weapon. And the other standout here th thing here to me is Tom Atkins. So a lot of times when movies bring in horror stars from previous generations, it's just like a glorified cameo. If they're lucky, they're given as much to do as Anthony Michael Hall was in Halloween Kills. And even that wasn't a lot, but usually it's less. But Tommy Atkins gets a real role in this movie. So I like it. Good stuff. And while we're on the topic of horror remakes from 2009, the, about the same amount of voting, just a little bit more, also went to the remake of Last House on the Left. And there's a couple things going on here. One is, as you know, I introed this podcast episode with, I, I don't particularly care if a remake is going to exceed the original somehow. I mean, that's super rare anyway. But it is interesting when it happens, and it was interesting in the voting how many people were saying, I actually really like this more than the original Last House on the Left. This is the only movie not in the top three of the voting where a ton of people were saying that. When I didn't see a lot of that again, oh no, there's one other. We'll get to that in a second. But mostly, it wasn't being said until we got to the very top tier of voting. Now, I think the standout other standout element for this remake is just the cast. I mean, it's well-directed and the sequences are really good, obviously, or it wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be talking about it. wouldn't be getting a ton of voting. But just uh, uh, beyond anything else the movie is doing well, it was just a great cast. Sarah Paxton was awesome. Um, Tony Goldwyn is always good. I don't know why I don't see him more. Aaron Paul is in this. Awesome. And then... Garrett Dillon's what a weird so 
I was a big Deadwood fan. This somehow they let this guy play three different roles in the Deadwood series, which was super confusing. I mean, I get he's talented, but whatever. But he plays a a great, great villain role in this movie. Okay, and since we're not going in any particular order till we get to the top, we might as well get to the other one I was talking about, where there was a lot of comments about people preferring this to the original. And this is a weird one because it's the 1997 The Shining miniseries directed by Mick Garrison, starring Steven Weber and Rebecca DeMornay. I didn't expect any non-movie voting, so this one took me a little by surprise. But there were just a ton of The Shining book fans making very passionate arguments about how much more faithful this was to the novel than Kubrick's version was. And I don't know. I like all three. (laughs) I like this miniseries. I like Kubrick's film. I like the novel. I think Steven Weber did a really good job of portraying Jack's downfall, you know, more sympathetically than Kubrick's version was. I wouldn't say it's better acted. I think Jack Nicholson's a more talented actor overall, but he, he got more to do in that respect. Famously, in Kubrick's version, Jack is pretty ominous and sinister, even when he's trying to be normal from the start. And this this one, Jack really does feel like a regular guy with a terrible alcoholism problem. And you get more sympathy for him because the hotel is tormenting him. It's taking more tormenting to get him to turn around than it does in Kubrick's version, or at least that's how I remember it. And I just like Mick Garris's work. I like his eye. I liked the stand miniseries. You know, it's fun seeing the hedge monsters spring to life here. I just, I'm, I'm such a fan of the visuals in Kubrick's version that, you know, the trading the axe for the croquet mallet and a lot of that other stuff. I don't know. I just, like I said, I like them both. If I was going to a desert island, I would take Kubrick's movie and not this. But we don't have to choose, right? They both exist. There were more than 100 votes for The Omen, the remake from 2006. And I think, you know, something is clearly jumping out here, which is if you're going to make a remake and you have any kind of credible chance of having horror fans think, wow, I really enjoyed that movie um, near as much as I enjoyed the original or it, you know, met my expectations or at least came close to one of your power moves is just to get an outstanding cast. And that's what the 2006 Omen does. I mean, this movie's got Julia Stiles, Liev Schreiber, Mia Farrow. It's got David Thewlis, who is just an incredible actor. His performance in the movie Naked from a long time ago is one of my favorite performances I've ever seen put to film. And I think one of the bravest uh, and darkest. But one of the really fun things that happened in the voting for this one were how many people remembered the unique advantage this remake had of the number game it was playing by coming out on 6-6 of the year 06. You know, the horror fans, a lot of times when they, like, when they announced they were doing an Exorcist, you know, remake or whatever David Gordon Green is doing with that thing, um, I saw so many comments, literally streams of comments saying, why? It's <laughs> just some version of why. And But that didn't happen with this movie because every horror fan, even the ones who don't like remakes, were like, ah, yeah, 666, I get it. You kind of have to do it. It's, happen- it's only going to happen once, at least while any of us 
are alive. So let's not let that date pass by. Let's remake this damn movie. Oh, and I forgot Pete Postlewaite's in it. He does an incredible job as the uh, the priest who gets skewered. I mean, just a great cast. I like this movie. It's not it's not fantastic by any means, at least to me. But um, it's visually cool. It's really, really rewatchable. Weirdly. I still remember the Mio Farrow. I won't spoil it, but uh, who she kills, but her killing someone with uh, introducing an air bubble into their like bloodstream. That whole sequence was just chilling. Finding the uh, the mother of Damien, that whole sequence with the dogs and then what it leads to and the recreation of the famous decapitation scene. All of that is really well done. It just feels kind of light on the scares and kind of heavy on the exposition to me, which is strange. We all know this story, but that's the choice they made. There were a lot of votes for Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear remake, which was great to see. Um, and, uh, you know, much more than 100 votes for the House of Wax remake, which watching that movie's reputation turn around over time has been fascinating to behold. Um, I feel about it the way I felt about it when it came out, which is, you know, it was, it's good. It's serviceable. Um, and it's really fun. I think it's got an underrated final girl. And then like that un I think, you know, the unforgettable use of the wax and then finding the friend with his peeling at his face and kind of those visuals just really makes it. There are unforgettable things once you see them. There were less than 100 votes for the wrong turn remake, I think from 2021, which somehow I missed. So I'm going to have to backtrack and see that. Um, there were uh, also a good amount of votes for, oh, I was so glad to see this, King Kong from 1976. You know what? I don't care what anyone says. I love this movie. Jeff Bridges, Jessica Lange, Charles Grodin, who I don't know how he got into his contract, but he spends like a good third of the movie just sitting on a beach, giving orders to people in, in a radio looking grumpy all the time. What an amazing, like low effort <laughs> film role he took on. Now, there's a lot of backstory about why this movie didn't come out as well as it should have. And I don't have time to cover all that here. You can look it up it's it's mainly to do around with the ape effects and fair enough i i think a lot of that age is kind of poorly there's a lot of just obvious big puppet hand coming into the screen and then cutting to a whole different king kong who feels like he's in an entirely different place not even attached to his own arm um things going on sometimes it looks really good and and expressive but a lot of times it's it's not unfortunately but I don't care. It's because the the scale of the King Kong story and then having this kind of budget made so much of this movie so beautiful to look at. Just it's like a comfort uh, horror movie to me. It's just the your eyes treated to so many sweeping landscape scenes and like Skull Island vistas. And then when we get to New York, it's just. I mean, it's not nearly as good as Peter Jackson's thing, and neither of them are as good as the original, but I really like this one. Jessica Lange was given a really weird character to play, and somehow she pulled it off, which is just she could get like a medal because the way they wrote this character was really choppy. I really like the way that Jeff Bridges comes into this movie as kind of like a rebel slash stowaway and gets co-opted by 
Charles Grodin into becoming like the official photographer of the mission. And there's this whole sequence where he's taking that job super seriously for some reason. I was expecting him to be like anti-authority, you know, like grudgingly do it. But all of a sudden he he was acting like he was, you know, the world's most important <laughs> photographer, chronicler of history, um, just snapping the camera nonstop at things. Really hilarious that he um, took the job as seriously as he does. Now, Confession, the ending of all the King Kong bothers movies bother me. They make me really sad. So this one is heartbreaking. Just the visual of it and the way it plays. Oh, my God. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I got to move on. It's just they do not drop the ball on the ending of this King Kong version. It's incredible. There was uh, more than 100 votes for the Matt Reeves Let the Right One In remake called Let Me In. There was also a lot of arguing, uh, frankly, on this one. And I just don't want to relive that kind of that kind of vibe. So I'm going to skip it. I really like it. Uh, I know that it's not as good as the original. No, almost no horror movies at all are as good as the original. I mean, it's, there's a very strong case to make for Let the Right One In as the greatest vampire movie ever made. But again, just in the spirit of trying to take the movie for what it is and not pinning all these remakes to the to the wall <laughs> against their predecessors, if the original Let the Right One didn't exist, I feel like Matt Reeves' Let Me In would be considered a horror masterpiece. It's just, it's, it's a movie that follows one of the greatest movies ever made, and that's just very hard to do in the hearts of a lot of fans, especially if there's a great book behind that as well. And, you know... It's weird to me because you know, anytime I post anything about uh, Let Me In, I, I it turns into a fight and there's tons of comments about how it it's not as good as the original, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it got me thinking because, you know, I've posted a lot of times over the years about the Friday the 13th 2009 remake. And I don't remember a single comment ever of anyone being like, this, this isn't as good as the original, so I can't accept it. Like, I don't know why it's different. Maybe because it's from a franchise and Let the Right One In isn't really a franchise. Maybe it's that people see Friday the 13th as a horror masterpiece, but maybe not like a masterpiece of cinema. I don't know. But it, 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 it leads to the odd result of wanting to... it Basically, by having this attitude of hammering Let Me In... Um, all the time for um, not living up to its original and then letting writing a pass for movies like Friday the 13th from 2009. Basically, what the, the outcome of that will be, we'll get a lot more Friday the 13th 2009s and a lot less let me ins. And I think that outcome sucks because if you gave me magic powers and I had to pick between one of these two movies existing and erasing the other one from the planet, I'm sorry to say <laughs> Friday the 13th, 2009 is gone. I think Let Me In is a much better made movie. Now, you might disagree. You, I mean, Friday the 13th might have been fun. I love Derek Mears' performance in the 2009 uh, Friday, but uh, it's it still, to me, Let Me In is scarier, uh, more interesting, has more depth, has better visuals. So I just don't like the idea of... of having an attitude that means we get more of whatever that Friday was and less of whatever let me in is, but you know, whatever, I'm not going to dwell on this. 
Okay, we've arrived. The two movies that um, I am going to talk about did get some votes, but not a lot. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let's go blast through the top four of the actual vote getters, and then I'll talk about these ones because they're the ones I'm most passionate about. Okay, in fourth place of the voting with more than 200 votes is the 2010 The Wolfman remake directed by Joe Johnston and starring Benicio Del Toro, Anthony Hopkins, Emily Blunt, Hugo Weaving, even Rick Baker makes an appearance in this movie. Great cast. You know, I don't remember this movie being taken very seriously when it uh, when it arrived. Um, it really has gained a lot of steam in horror fans' affections, at least from where I sit running a horror community. It's it's something that just, I mean, clearly it got a ton of voting here and uh, a lot of passionate arguments for it. And they all kind of centered around the fact that it's um, super rewatchable and has great atmosphere, good action sequences, and just kind of delivered on what, the expectations are for doing a more action-based kind of horror remake. I find it interesting in terms of the failure of the Dark Universe reboot because, you know, whether it's Tom Cruise's uh, Excrable the Mummy or it's uh, Dracula Untold, which, you know, that movie, if it, it, it could have had a similar track as the Wolfman remake, right? Like, People could be rediscovering Dracula Untold and talking about it. And I'm sure some of you out there listening are or, or really like it. That's fine. But my point is it doesn't create enough buzz for me to notice it in terms of what happens in the Horror Weekly community. But The Wolfman sure does. I mean, anytime I post about this movie or ask questions about this movie, it's got really fierce advocates for it. And it and they're not not small in numbers. Now, in number third place of the voting is the magnificent Tom Savini remake of Night of the Living Dead from 1990, starring Patricia Tallman and Tony Todd. And this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about, because I am the biggest fan of the original Night of the Living Dead in the world. And I do not by any means think the 1990 remake is better or more important in terms of as a movie, but I don't give a fuck because it's a great movie in its own right. I have watched this movie so many times. This might be the only time where you could use the phrase cash grab in a noble way because the reason this movie was made was to get some money to the original creators of the first one that they deserve that they never got because of a stupid mistake. And the fact that they took Barbara and turned her in a believable and gradual way into like an almost uh, Ripley kind of character is just a, such a fresh and interesting maneuver for the movie to execute. And I love how they changed the ending here. I mean, I obviously prefer the first ending, but if you're trying to leave some suspense in your remake and not straight up copy, you're not like Gus Van Sant doing shot by shot. If you're going to make a change, make it interesting. And what's interesting here is, first of all, it implicates us, the audience, because, and I'm going to spoil this one, sorry, it's old enough to head straight into it. When Barbara shoots Cooper 
First of all, the look on her face when she realizes that Tony Todd didn't make it and this guy did. The the look, that single expression, I could sketch it from memory if I could draw. <laughs> um, because it was, I mean, just a perfect, she felt the way we were all feeling in that moment. And then that, that quick reflex is to shoot them before there are any other witnesses because they're right around the, cover, the corner. They come... They're there in a second after the gunshot is heard. And to play it off that Cooper was a zombie, which no one could see, was seeing and is perfectly reasonable given the situation. And then to drop the epic, that's another one for the fire line. That change not only implicates us, the audience, because in this case, we're rooting for it. We weren't rooting for the the shot that leads to the that's another one for a fire um, ending in the first one. Now all of a sudden we're put in this awkward situation of being glad it happened, and then that incredibly grim line, which I've talked about previously on the podcast as one of my favorite single line lines of dialogue ever written in a horror movie. the The implication here is now. The, the other one for the fire is we added someone, uh, someone who wasn't a zombie into the fire. We, like we we got rid of someone who we, we executed our own justice and the fire is going to cover up whether that justice actually was justified or not. Sure, it felt great, but it's pretty ethically ambiguous. I love this. I love this to death. So great to see that it came in at number three. Now. And second place, and I got to be honest, it w I don't think it would have been second place if there hadn't been like a third party training off the vote situation here. But in second place are both Rob Zombie's Halloween movies, and they split votes amongst each other. But there were a lot of people who voted for them together. So just doing the together votes and trying to add it up. It came a little short. Well, it came a significant amount short. The winner was like the winner. But I don't know what would have happened if everyone had steered votes for one or the other of these movies. The first Rob Zombie movie got more votes. Halloween remake got more votes than the second one, which I prefer the second one over the first one. But it's interesting because a lot of the people who were voting for the first one we're voting for it exactly for the most controversial thing that it does, which is give Michael Myers a backstory. The second one has really grown on me over the years um, in terms of just how beautifully shot it is and the kind of the ferocity with which Michael Myers is doing the kills and then the sheer weirdness of it all. I mean, let's face it, I'm a David Lynch fan, so I'm uh, I'm primed for... When a horror movie gets really weird, I feel like what it does is it knocks the viewer back off their stance a little bit. It keeps us off off balance and not quite being sure if the person making the movie is like sane. <laughs> so it feels a little threatening. And I really like that. And I think that to me came through more in the second one than the first one. But these movies got a lot of votes and there were a lot of people who were saying they preferred Rob Zombie's Halloween to the original, which I, I, I can't get there because uh, it's sentimental to me. And I just feel like it's wrong in terms of the craft of filmmaking. But Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween is the first major 
movie that scared me out when I was out of my childhood, when I was into like early teens. So like, I, cause I could get scared as a kid. I could get scared by like universal monsters or whatever. Like if I was you know, seven years old, sitting in front of the TV and the, the mummy came on or Dracula came on. Like, sure. I could find that frightening then, but Halloween, the original Halloween is just dear to my heart as my first, like I keep me up all night kind of scare. I'm also not quite sure these movies fit the question that I asked, which was what are some horror remakes that are good that no one seems to talk about? I feel like everyone talks about these movies all the time, but I get why the voting took it that way. They meant talk good about it. And I think there's a lot of bashing of the zombie Halloween movies that goes on. So the people who were voting for it were like, we wish there was a little less bashing and a little more love. So fair enough. And then our winner by a pretty good margin is the magnificent remake of the crazies from 2010, 2009, 2010 apparently was a really good nexus of years for solid remakes happening. The crazies was directed by Breck Eisner and it stars Timothy Oliphant, Rada Mitchell, and the super underrated Joe Anderson. Just a great, great movie. I mean, <laughs> Timothy Oliphant and Rhonda Mitchell had real chemistry together, real believable chemistry together. They're both fantastic actors, but there are just undeniably amazing sequences in this movie. The the cover, uh, the poster I see most often for this is the pitchfork dragging on the ground and the tension in that scene where that pitchfork's being used, where you're strapped down on the gurneys, that tension is crazy high. And, the, you know, because the two characters, because Judy, who's uh, Rada Mitchell, and Becca, uh, Danielle Pennebaker, those two characters are both strapped down there. The, the, there's like a weird reenactment of the two ships threatening to blow each other up in the Dark Knight um, movie because... When the killer's heading towards one of them, the other one either has the choice to remain completely silent, not do anything to distract, and just let the murder happen, or try to do something. And clearly, the logical thing to do is to play dead and lay there, because what are you going to do? You're strapped down. You All you can do is make sound and draw attention. And then what? <laughs> then you're getting killed. And then the other one who's probably already been spotted and identified, I mean, who definitely has been spotted and identified, because Becca has already, like, cried and whimpered and made sounds that have drawn the crazy's attention. He, he's just going to go back to her. So why have two people die instead of one? And that makes sense, you know, logically but morally you could see as the crazy got closer with the pitchfork and had already killed a couple of fellow crazies i mean apparently crazies have no problem turning on each other um in brutal oh my god just visually striking fashion um just an awful awful way to go um it's sort of like pit and the pendulum bit being played out with a fucking pitchfork um, you could see it on Ronna Mitchell's face that she knows what the what she should do and she can't help herself. Like as soon as Becca's about to be impaled, she's just like shit, 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 and then she screams and is like, you know, leave her. I forget what she says, but the killer turns and heads straight towards her, and she immediately regrets regrets it. And it's that the the 
it's exquisite how they're the kind of the ethical nature of what to do in that situation is played out in the most brutally stripped down kind of way. My favorite sequence in the whole movie, though, is the car wash <laughs> scene, which is I mean, I could watch that on loop. Ten times in a row, happily. It's amazing. It has a, a, a like just a remarkable ending to it that you, I didn't expect. Certainly, I didn't expect what happened to the car. It was so sudden, so loud, and so visually um, in your face um, because my attention was totally with the the people. And and it's very clever if you go back and look at it because. The director keeps the car kind of coasting with just enough tiny motion for your brain to be registering the car in the background of the scene. But the director's keeping your focus hard inside the car wash. So it's a juggling act. And that's like almost Hitchcock material to be able to judge juggle the background and the foreground, keep you aware enough of the background without drawing your attention to it because they want to drop the surprise on you and drop it. They do. And then the way the kills go down inside the car wash and the, the sheer panic on, on behalf of the characters, it's like Joe Anderson who plays Russell. Russell is like, Yelling, yelling so distractingly, I almost wanted to smack him through the screen. Like, get us out of here, get us out of here. And clearly, Timothy Olyphant is doing everything he can to get him out of there. Yelling at him is not helping, but everyone is acting like super compulsively, and it makes the whole movie feel real in a way that um, is pretty rare. And you know, you're feeling from these characters for the start, the way their town is getting dismantled, the way they know each other. Ronald Mitchell says at one point in the movie. Um, there's a great moment when they, the old, like, I mean, it's a relentless film. They're under threat most of the time. So there's very few peaceful scenes once the crazy stuff starts going down, which is pretty fast. And when they get back to their house, the first thing that um, Judy does is start taking down the, the laundry that was hanging outside, uh, like pulling off the clothespins. And it's, such a random thing to do when you've just escaped like a a pseudo zombie apocalypse to be like bringing the laundry in. And um, it's that touch of normality. She just wants her life back so bad. And it's such almost like a pitiful um, gesture to, to be doing, but she's just trying to do something that feels right again. And, it doesn't last for more than a few seconds because reality comes crashing in and they got to figure out what to do to escape. And it's, it's bad. And she turns to Timothy Oliphant as she gives up on the laundry and says, and looks at their, their house and their yard. And they have a nursery in there because her character is pregnant and is going to give birth. And they're just, they've been planning their whole future. And she just looks around and she's like, everyone we know is dead. Our, our town is dead. It's just all so believable and well done. Well-deserved win in the top of the voting for best horror remakes people don't seem to talk about. Okay, now let's cover the two movies that I would be picking. Uh, They did get some votes, but not high enough to really be uh, talked about in the official list, but I'm just going to try to champion these because of how much I love them. And, you know... One of the reasons I love that I get to do this podcast is because of 
things like I'm about to describe now. Um, there's a movie that I I did not I hadn't seen this movie until last week. I didn't see this movie until we started voting um, on this topic on the pages, and then I saw some mentions of it. I was pretty intrigued by it, and then I went and looked it up and and watched it, and my mind was blown. And then I did some research on it, and then my mind was exploded. And the movie I'm talking about is Abel Ferrara's remake called Body Snatchers. So the Body Snatchers uh, story by Jack Finney has been filmed in a major way, I think four times, right? And the first one was the classic by Don Siegel in 1954. Then the second one is the possibly even more classic remake of that one in 1978, directed by Philip Kaufman. And then we have this one from 93. And then there's The Invasion with Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig, which is terrible. Now, I'm going to be a little bit of a hypocrite here, I guess. I mean, I, I, I don't care. It doesn't affect... Remakes don't affect how I feel about originals. But I'm really mad at the invasion after discovering how amazing the 93 Body Snatchers is. Because I I can't think of three masterpieces, two one masterpiece and two remakes. So to have three movies that all legitimately could be called the some of the greatest horror movies ever made, what a run. It honestly would be like if someone remade John Carpenter's The Thing and made it as good as The Thing. Because The Thing from Another World is also an incredible movie from one of the greatest directors who ever lived. So it's, you know, if we had three of those, it would be so unlikely, <laughs> right? And the fact that we have these three and then the invasion came along and like ruined the string <laughs> pisses me off. So basically, the 93 Body Snatchers is set on an army base somewhere in the south. And we're, it's, we're kind of like going along for the ride through the POV of a teenage girl named Marty. And she's moved there with her dad and then her brother and then her stepmother, played by Meg Tilly. And I think um, Marty and Meg Tilly are the stars of the show. Meg Tilly is remarkable in this film. Now, I saw Abel Ferrara's um, Bad Lieutenant and Miss 45 both on the big screen, and I'm a huge fan. Miss 45, although tough to watch, is just a, a stunning achievement. But you can tell with this director that you're dealing with someone who has a philosophy of what they're about, what their craft is. It's kind of the same phenomenon you're getting from a Christopher Nolan or a David Lynch. They're definitely going to put their stamp on things. But the way the the changes happen here, the way the pods are created, and the way that people are being copied is like, I don't, it's like a biological furnace of creation somehow. It's so um, disgusting, but weirdly natural, like alien natural. And I really like that there's a division inside the family before the crisis breaks out. Because if you're already a little paranoid about who are these people I live with, like, am I, are, are we really part of the same family? Are we really on the same page? Um, those cracks can get widened and widened 
uh, when a crisis like a body snatching happens. It's kind of how I felt the movie Splinter worked, where you had the couple that were really on the same page, but then all of a sudden they're forced to team up with this um, uh, criminal who they end up making a great team together, but they're definitely working against each other a lot of the time until they kind of weld into one. And that welding does not happen here. The splits are pretty bad. Oh, I forgot Forrest Whitaker is also amazing in this. He just doesn't have much of a part because he's gone pretty fast. And the way he goes is emotionally devastating. But Meg Tilly, holy shit, makes this thing. Sometimes when you watch as much horror as I do, you just despair that there's any greatly, truly great scenes left that you haven't uh, watched. And her scene where she turns on her family is as great as the stair scene in The Exorcist or the prom scene in Carrie. I'm not kidding. It is it is pure greatness. The way she, I wish I could play it for you here. I wish I was better at editing um, because it would, but you should just watch it if you haven't seen it because the she is cornering this family literally physically and emotionally and verbally all at the same time. It's, it's bad enough when you're, when Michael Myers is forcing you into a corner against the wall and you know, you're going to end up getting stuck to the wall because that's his move. It's worse when someone's hounding you emotionally, physically. She breaks her husband down in a way where he can't even fight back. He can't even move. And she hasn't even touched him to do it. And it's the cadence of how she's speaking and behind the words of what she's saying, where she's saying, like, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? How are you going to hide? There's no one like you left. You're all alone. It's this repetitive like it's like pounding a stake into the vampire the hammer blow every where you're gonna go what are you gonna do every like chunk of the phrase that she brings out is just like another the hammer dropping down pinning you and then of course she gets to do the the donald sutherland insane scream moment and i would have never thought in a million years because of how iconic that is that anyone could have credibly done that with a straight face and pulled it off but she absolutely does it's a miracle so invasion of the body snatchers is a three-headed hydra of achievement all masterpieces incredible so sad that i hadn't seen it up to now but so excited that you all pointed me to it and now i get this gift so to my amazement when i started researching this i found that roger ebert gave this movie four fucking stars and he wrote a really good review of it really insightful i mean not a surprise being him uh i guess mild surprise just because the impression people get is that he hates a lot of horror movies and some of that is fair siskel was a way more horror hater than ebert was at least as far as i can tell but um in this case just really really well done but i'm just gonna read you the last line of it because it's so good um he was talking about how the body snatchers was it's it was entered into the competition at con that was the first time the public got to see it and didn't win and then he says this at the end of his review certainly body snatchers is not the kind of movie that wins festivals it's a hard-boiled entry in a disreputable genre fuck you guys (laughs) back to the quote sorry but as sheer movie making 
It is skilled and knowing and deserves the highest praise you can give a horror film. It works. Mm. And I'll tell you, there is a scene at the end that I don't want to spoil because I know a lot of people haven't seen this movie. But there's a choice that has to be made in a helicopter of throwing someone out. And even though I knew exactly what was happening and I knew that it was the right thing to do, I was squirming in my seat when it was happening and at the idea of doing it, of like, if I was in that character's shoes, could I do what needed to be done? And the fact that a movie like this old could make me um, that uncomfortable is just a testament to its power. Just remarkable film. And our last movie to talk about is the Willard remake from 2003, directed by Glenn Morgan of X-Files fame and starring Crispin Glover, Arlie Ermey, and Laura Herring, the actor who played one of the uh, Trouble Twins in Mulholland Drive. And, you know, I want to say this is the Crispin Glover show, but Arlie Ermey is so good in this film, and he's so good at being the hateable, intimidating character. I just don't want to gloss over how important he is to the chemistry of this movie. But this movie is fantastic. It's the best Tim Burton horror movie Tim Burton never made. And it's also just really sad. It's really, everyone talks about how when I ask what are the saddest horror movies, and I always get answers like The Mist or Martyrs or whatever. But, you know, horror movies can be sad without um, having to flay everyone alive or shoot everyone in the head. They Sometimes it can just be the emotional sadness. And the trap that uh, Willard is in here and then the trap that anyone who cares about him ends up having to get into themselves. And I'm counting his friends here. I'm counting Socrates and Ben, um, his his rat friends. But the movie is, you know, it'll visually represent. You'll see Willard, you know, it, it trapped in an elevator with like a that, that black mesh the old timey elevators have where he's behind a screen almost like he's in jail. He's in windows sometimes where there's bars. So you're seeing visually, subconsciously, it's being portrayed to you how trapped this person is in the the disaster of their own life choices and alienation and loneliness and, and sensitivity to things. But it's also in all of Crispin Glover's acting and his body language and his facial expressions and the verbal repetitions. That's such a giveaway that someone's in emotional distress when they can't think of anything better to do but to say the same thing over and over again. And then it turns the chilling effect when Willard starts to strike back because he's kind of got like Carrie White's arc, except for instead of telekinesis, he's got control over rats. But he's saying a lot of the same things over and over again. He's apologizing for being late over and over again to his boss. He's giving the same reason over and over again, which is that his mother's sick. And that didn't work in the last scene, so I don't know why he thinks it's going to work in this scene. But I don't think he's calculated in terms of what will work. I think it's compulsive because he doesn't see any other path. It's like literally being caught in a maze. And making the same turns and ending up in the same blind alleys and dead ends. And he's so good at portraying this. And the movie is so good at showing it without being too on the nose or too over the top. I mean, it is in a couple places, but in its overall effect, it's not. It's still a pretty nuanced kind of thing. 
just god damn this is so good and you know the the rats themselves and how they're handled and how that friendship slowly builds and how the enmity between Willard and Ben starts to break out and you start to feel so bad for Ben because he's being um, discriminated against by Willard in the same way that Willard is being discriminated and judged by other people in his life and that that's one of the saddest things about it is that he's making you would think that if you were being bullied all the time, that you would never be the bully. But of course, as soon as he gets a little power over Ben, he is kind of a bully with it. And that's going to lead to their downfall kind of. And it's you, then you end up feeling sad for a rat. I mean, this movie is making you feel empathy towards a fucking big rat, but that repetition, that verbal tick of saying the same thing over and over again, that I'm talking about becomes really striking when Willard starts to slip into villain mode, because one of his most chilling commands to the rats is tear it up. And he just says it over and over. And it's, it's a, it's a great performance because you know how when you say a word over and over in your head, it sort of loses its meaning or you start to lose steam with, you know, how you're saying it. He gets as much relish on the 30th time of saying tear it up as he had in the first time. And that's just a testament to the uh, the emotional pressure that's inside of him. The fact that he's a boiling kettle and, you know, just saying these words isn't letting any of the pressure out. Or if it is, it's just tiny little you know, the steam's coming out just a little bit out of the kettle around the edges, but it's not doing anything to end that boiling uh, inferno inside that's like Willard's emotional life. And when he finally unleashes the rats on some of his tormentors, and I won't spoil it, but I wish I could, because I wish I could talk about the, the, the swarm of rats scene and, and who goes down in this scene, but like, it's so well executed, but when he turns that phrase from tear it up, because that's what he's saying when he's having the rats, you know, train and eat magazines and then start to eat tires. Um, when he turns the phrase from tear it up to tear him up, oh, chills. And I certainly never thought I'd be talking on this podcast about skilled acting um, prowess from rats, but Ben is awesome in this movie. Is He's clearly getting madder and madder that he's being ignored or skipped over for Socrates, who's being, you know, pampered and cuddled by Willard all the time. But just the animosity that's building and sort of the Willard will come around the corner and then Ben will be there like a jump scare, just waiting, just getting madder and madder inside, just like Willard is. So now you have this duel between these two. But Ben isn't like emotionally repressed like humans are. If he's feeling rage, you got to figure out how to get that rage out. But there's a great little touch early in the movie when uh, Willard is using the rats to slash one of his enemy's tires in their garage. And he didn't even want to bring Ben, but Ben stowed away because he's a determined little fucker. And he, Willard, there's this great moment. I think it's my favorite moment of the whole movie when Willard sees Ben trying to get into the garage. The rats kind of chewed the seal underneath the garage so they could slip in. And he watches Ben waddle over there and then try to get in. And Willard laughs. And it's kind of mean. It's it's sad in its way. I don't want to like overthink this like rat movie, but it, it it's mean how quick he transitions from backing up his rat friends who have kind of emotionally saved his life because he was so miserable and they're 
they've been his only out emotionally. But as soon as one of them, he's, he Willard just looks at him and, and smirks and says, you can't fit through there. And then Ben basically Mike Tyson's his way into the garage. He just chews a huge asshole, uses his paws, pushes against it, like using force. Um, and you that little touch tells you that Ben is not going to be. So here's what I'm saying. Like we see Willard in the movie getting locked into elevators and trapped in the closed spaces and he can't figure a way out. And Ben is the opposite. He's not going to be told where to go or what to do or kept anywhere. And the fact that there's that level of emotional sophistication in a killer rat movie is astounding. And I hate to say it, but like with Arlie Ermey as the boss of this, of Willard's boss in this office, figuring out how to cross Jigsaw with Michael Scott from The Office somehow in personality. Um, It's terrible because he's bullying the shit out of Willard, but the amount of variety he comes up with to torment this poor fucking employee uh, is... I mean, it's it's like watching Full Metal Jacket all over again, but in an office. I honestly think Willard is a movie I'm going to watch every couple of years for the rest of my life. It's that good. Okay, there you have it. The best horror remakes nobody seems to talk about as voted on by the Horror Weekly community. Thank you so much to everybody who voted and reacted and brought their passion for the horror genre to the conversation and fought for the movies they believe in. You are the engine that makes this podcast go. Couldn't happen without you. I think of it as like the only podcast co-hosted by 500,000 people. So I appreciate every single one of you. And thank you so much to everybody who's uh, making this thing rise higher by uh, supporting with reviews and ratings. I still see them coming in. I got there's a review that dropped on the Apple platform, which I think is uh, the only you can't do. You can't write a review on Spotify. You can only leave a star rating. But on Apple, you can actually write things down. And this made my fucking day. This was such a great um, review. It was titled Dangerously Addictive. It's from Hendel TBD. Shout out to you. Thank you so much. The review says my sister referred to me referred me to an episode that was in part about one of her favorite movies, Night of the Comet. I listened to that one, then just kept going, binging another half dozen episodes in a single afternoon. Love the unique community-oriented format. Uh, Until Joe Bob starts a podcast, this is my horror home once a week. The only downside is that I'm probably going to die under the weight of my already unmanageable watch list. (laughs) Thank you so much. That cracked me up. I'm so sorry. I mean, there were like 50 movies mentioned on this episode. So your watch list is going to uh, sag and probably dent the floor and bring your... uh, Bring your building down. I, I apologize. Um, but I appreciate the thoughts. And, I, you know, you can go once Joe Bob starts a podcast. We we can share. Like, we can do shared custody. It's totally fine. I love Joe Bob, uh, too. So keep those reviews coming. And uh, I'll also leave a link to the subscriber group. Um, big shout out to David Rodriguez, who joined a couple days ago. Thank you so much for the support. It's going to help make this thing bigger and better. I'll leave a link to that group in the show notes and that's it. I'm, I gotta go. I'm hungry. I'm going to find a sandwich and tear it up, tear it up, tear it up. Thank you for listening. And until next Wednesday, have a great horror week.